Hello, this is Jan Scruggs, founder of the National Vietnam Veterans Memorial. And uh, many of you have met me before and uh, have certainly visited the Vietnam Veterans Wall. I am here today with a guy, we're going to give him a little disguised name. We're going to call him Major Major, because he's going to tell us an interesting story of, of how his career uh, started uh, right out of high school. He had decisions to make, and uh, he, he made some and uh, ended up flying aircraft all over the world and uh, navigating. And, and uh, in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis, he was sitting there with his, his, his uh, in the pilot seat with nuclear weapons <laughs> because we were about to go to war. Hopefully cooler, hunt, cooler people prevailed. Okay, Major Major, you, still, you get out of high school and then what? I joined the aviation cadet program for the Air Force. Does that still exist? I don't think so. It was a temporary because there was a big shortage of navigators and pilots for the Strategic Air Command, better known as SAC. Ah, better known as SAC, yeah. Uh -huh. So where were your first assignments? Did you go someplace great like Paris, France? or? No, my first assignment was to uh, Pease Air Force Base uh, as a radar navigator bombardier in uh, New Hampshire. I see. So looking back at these old World War II movies, I, yeah, watch the bombardier. He's looking at little targets below and pulling, pushing buttons and so forth. And uh, what kind of bombs were you dropping on, on, on who and why? <laughs> well, my job was to drop thermonuclear weapons, hydrogen bombs, as they're called. Yeah. Uh, in particular targets in a certain country, which was our enemy at the time during the Cold War. Yeah. And uh, and then we, uh, I never dropped a bomb other than some practice ones. Obviously, I didn't want to drop one of the real ones. <laughs> yeah. And and I was pretty good at it. So uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, we encountered uh, DEFCON 2 which was uh, the highest the country's ever been, but it was strictly the U.S. Otherwise, it was DEFCON 3 was the highest. And in October of 62, uh, was a Cuban Missile Crisis started. And uh, when it got to DEFCON 2, we ended up being dispersed from our base uh, in groups of three to airports all over the country. I only left three airplanes at Pease. Uh, so if there was an attack, you know, we would still have aircraft out there. Yeah. And I would sit there in the maintenance shed with my airplane parked about 30 yards away with protected by dogs and guards. And it was sitting there loaded, ready for war. Uh, fortunately, we never got alerted because we had three minutes to get airborne after we were alerted, even if we were in bed. So you can guess we slept in our uniforms. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, that was uh, that was kind of a scary time because I was uh, really scared of what happened if 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 the alarm went off. It yeah. was uh, it was to take off and go and and do my job. And at the time, uh, I think the, the worldwide worldwide there were like four thousand nuclear weapons or something like that. You know, if you put everything together, so uh, <laughs> no, nobody. I mean, you would, you would take off from the mission, but you probably wouldn't come back, would you? 
No, well, the it was known when we when we left the odds of getting back were slim, and uh, but uh, my job was to take the airplane from the U.S. direct it to our target and uh, and avoid being shot down to deliver delivered the weapon, then try to escape, bail out over friendly territory if that was possible. That's kind of what the mission was. It was sort of a one way street. We knew that. Yeah, yeah, for probably the whole world, and that's why <laughs> have to find better ways to resolve problems. But I don't know. But after the Cuban Missile Crisis, I mean, you continued to do Air Force types of things, but eventually you ended up in the Vietnam War. Is that correct? Yes, uh, in 1965, uh, the 509th the Bomb Wing uh, and SAC folded. They discontinued it. Uh, JFK. Uh, you know, proceeded to remove the B-47s from service. So I was released from SAC and I was picked up by MAC, Military Airlift Command, and became a navigator for, you know, worldwide flying. We used to, uh, did everything that the Air Force did. It was quite busy. I spent basically 20, 25 days a month out of, uh, out of the U.S. Yeah. That must really take a toll on your family at the time you had a wife and all that. Yeah, it did. That's what uh, I ended my active duty uh, for that. And then that next 13 years I did in the guard and continued flying. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it was my wife like, or my career. <laughs> yeah. How did you enjoy your introduction to the Vietnam War in Cameron Bay? What happened there? Uh, well, we started in, in Vietnam flying C-130s, and we had a lot of activity. We land there, then we go ahead and drop supplies to the various, and you know, prop, you know, land and unload or drop them out of the airplane. And for uh, that was pretty much in support of the combat. Then we got 141s a couple of years later, and that kind of changed the program, and we started. Uh, flying, you know, munitions, food in, and then quite often we would convert to a medevac or a hearse and return to the U.S. with uh, wounded men or, or unfortunately their bodies. And we did a lot of that. And otherwise I flew, you know, around the world a number of times, uh, you know, other missions. And in Cameron Bay, we were there, I uh, was planning a mission. It was the only place we stayed overnight. Playing in mission when I, when I was working in uh, the uh, at operations doing my flight planning, and I had to think about this last night. And as I was standing in there, at that table I just left, another guy came running in and said, you know, he dropped his pencil, looked under the table, and he saw a bomb underneath that table. So that was kind of exciting to get out of there that time, but that was the closest I came other than that offensive to you know, being hurt. I uh, kind of felt guilty because I always slept in a bed at night and uh, I wasn't involved, you know, in the down and dirty with the, with the troops. It was kind of hard to take, really. Yeah. So if you've got a big aircraft there, a C-141 or something like that, and uh, what are they firing mortars at you? 
When we were in Da Nang at the start of the Tet Offensive, that was, I think, in January of 68, uh, end of January. Uh, and it started then, and I happened to be there then. And we landed there. As we landed, we were informed that, that parking spaces on either side of us uh, were had airplanes in them a day or two before, and they had been destroyed. So they moved out, and we kind of parked in between the spots. And while we were pulling in the parking spot, the, the guy that was guiding us in dropped the flashlights and started banging on the door and hollered incoming. So uh, we uh, shut the airplane down and ran like hell and climbed into bunkers <laughs> and, uh, and you know, sandbag bunkers. And we sat there and watched uh, for an hour or two. Uh, the war began. Fortunately, the plane wasn't hit. And uh, there were rockets coming off a mountain across from Da Nang. I think it was called Monkey Mountain and yes. gunfire. But uh, it was like watching a movie. And yes. the most impressive thing was that uh, I guess uh, 120, you know, C, what the hell with it? The old twin engine commercial aircraft from way back. Oh, the Douglas aircraft. Yeah, it was, uh, it flew over. And uh, two columns of red came down. It was kind of strange to the top of the mountain. And they were firing, you know, the, the Gatlin cannons. And uh, they, they, there was two bursts like that. Then the shooting that, you know, the launching of the rockets were from the top of the mountain stopped. And then a couple minutes later, a, a, a group of helicopters came up also with the mini guns, the Gatlin guns. And they came up like lawnmowers and sprayed along the edge of the runway. There was a, a ravine there where the enemy was shooting at us. And they kind of emptied the ravine. And a little bit after that, we were cleared to go into operations, prepare to leave. So that was kind of like a movie. It was wild. Did you do anything with flying in Europe, NATO, pleasant places yeah, we, Spain or Italy or anything like that? Yeah, we had one mission uh, that I liked. You take off flying east from Charleston, where my base was, and that we would continue to fly east, and we would stop in Spain and Morocco, Italy, you know, uh, Arabia, and we continue, uh, and we would spend the night, you know, in India or uh, Thailand, places like that, and continue flying Guam, Japan, Okinawa, and all the way around. Still flying east, we landed at Charleston again, <laughs> and it was like a seven to day, ten day trip, just a continuous twenty five thousand mile loop. I've done that a number of times, yeah. but uh, it, the Air Force was very involved all over the world. We were everywhere. Yeah. During the Tet or at Quezon, you made a couple visits there. What was your job in in Quezon? Well, the job was to. Uh, to go chase on and play coup were two of the, we call them fire bases. Uh, you could not, uh, at first you could land and offload, uh, you know, supplies for them. And then it got to the point you could no longer do that. But this was with the 130s. And I think 141, we may have done it once or twice, is we'd have a line of uh, pallets on the airplane paired with a parachute on the back. We'd unlock them and fly about 50 foot above the runway parachutes would deploy and they pull the string of uh, pallets out and they land on the ground, skidding on the ground. And we instantly 
point the air, nose in the air and full throttle to get out, you know, out of range of the gunfire. Mm. But we did that a couple of times. That was kind of neat. Yeah. What caliber weapon were they firing at your? Well, mostly it was, I, I don't know what the, what the Viet Cong was using, seven, you know, probably, you know, the Russian uh, guns, uh, you know, the, the rifles, battle rifles and uh, and machine guns. Uh, we never, I never encountered any rockets fired at me when we flew those missions, but we did get hit a few times by machine gun fire. Yeah, they had a 12.5 millimeter kind of crew serve machine gun and that, that yeah. took a lot of helicopters down and yeah. aircraft and and people too. <laughs> you know, they're still yeah, fortunately, uh, you know, we, uh, I never got hit and we didn't, uh, and we never suffered anything more than punctures in my airplane anyway. Yeah. Well, uh, I'd rather be lucky than good. <laughs> yeah. Aviation can get a little rough. It happens very quickly. How many times did you almost have a aviation accident, would you say, because of uh, unexpected bad weather, that sort of thing? Uh, not really, because, you know, we were big boys and we were pretty well trained and capable of, of encountering anything. Uh, one the, my biggest thing that I, that I didn't like doing was, you know, we go down to Saigon and uh, we'd switch the plane over to a medevac and we'd load men on board and we could back and, you know, the flight crew would help the the the, uh, the doctors and nurses that would be loading the men on. And it was uh, that was kind of hard for me to see, you know, 18 year old guys, you know, with missing legs and and. And a terrible wound. In fact, I'm starting to choke up now thinking about it. And uh, and then the nasty flights, we'd do it at night, and we'd have pallets full of gray boxes. And it was, it, it really bothered me a lot. I really felt, you know, like I was something special, and I, I didn't deserve to be there because it, those guys were down in the dirt, kind of like you were, and facing it, you know, face to face. and. Uh, I just felt like I was kind of privileged and, and uh, I felt ashamed for, for not being in the combat. It's kind of weird. It's uh, probably a stupid feeling, but those were the flights that I really detested, but it had to be done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those guys, uh, a lot of them made it back. A lot of them didn't. For the ones who didn't, oddly enough, they uh, certainly got something very eternal, which is having their name engraved next to the Lincoln Memorial. That was my idea. So, uh, I, I, A lot of those names on that wall uh, that I was part in bringing them back. And uh, I, uh, I didn't really, that part was, was, was not very much fun. So was, am I going to take you to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial one day before you die? If you can stand to see a grown man break down and cry. When well, I, see I don't think it would be the first time that's ever happened there. Yeah, I uh, yeah, I, I want to visit it because I know I was associate for four years. I was in and out of Vietnam, and uh, and I if I watch a, a documentary or something like that on Vietnam, I I I, I tear up. I it, the emotions are still right under my right under the skin. Yeah, I don't know where that is, but yeah. uh, I guess we didn't talk about it much, and I really never did. It's probably the most I've ever spoke about it at one point. Well, they they made a lot of project pro progress with uh, PTSD, 
And now that your platoon leaders and squad leaders are trained to have people talk about these things that happen, you know, a couple of guys are killed perhaps and badly wounded. You know, they sit down after the battle's over and talk about their feelings and and how, how are they doing. So, but uh, nothing easy about war. And uh, but that's a, just an amazing story from time to time. The Cuban Missile Crisis does get re-aired, re-litigated sometimes. And the uh, very, very close to having a warfare and there was... Uh, everybody had their finger on the trigger and it was not good yeah I, I, I've noticed it and the men and stuff that came back from Vietnam the one that was people I've associated with nobody talked about it it was uh, it, it was something that wasn't really discussed it's talked about now more because you know I didn't realize then that it could affect you the way it did yeah yeah well, Major Major, and that was 60 years thank ago. you for serving your country, and uh, we'll send you a copy of this exciting uh, podcast. You can frame it if you'd like. You can figure out. Okay. All right, we'll keep your head in the water. Thank you. Okay, thank you. <laughs>